We're going to move on to Guillaume. Hi, Tom. Hi, MBT team. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, my question is in relation with uh, one question asked in a previous uh, fireside chat. So um, I will uh, read it out loud. So it's in relation of uh, someone um, asked a question about the effects of music and frequencies in relation of uh, consciousness and matter. And uh, the guy who asked the question was uh, <clears throat> talking about some love frequency or um, uh, different frequency in relation of um, the consciousness. So, uh, Tom, you seem to conclude by saying that uh, you will dig more into this topic and some research by a guy named Leonard G. Horowitz. So, uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, belief in relation of specific tuning in the music, in relation of uh, like uh, E440 uh, and E440. 44 and uh, like on the other uh, instrument tunings like 432 so i remain really skeptic about uh, uh, those uh, research or this guy uh, dr oloritz about um specific tuning in relation of um, um consciousness and music or something like that so uh, there's a quote about uh, nikola tesla who uh, <clears throat> I will sit it right there. Uh, it said, if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And I think that uh, nothing can highlight this more than semantics with just a vib vibrating plate forming beautiful patterns, beautiful ge geometrical patterns that are relative to the geometry of, uh, by example, the plate, and the sound of the plate. I don't know uh, if you know what I mean by that. Oh, yeah. I know what you mean. Okay, thank you. I will really like to have some feedback uh, about the specific tuning of, a, of an instrument, of a music instrument, and, and how a specific tuning frequencies could have a positive, positive effect on matter or on the quality of consciousness. I think it's very, it's an, a very important subject that I've made a lot of confusion in the musician community around the world. There is also a lot of belief uh, concerning this tuning system, and I will uh, want to hear more about that. So I will uh, go right on my question. So uh, if a certain frequency can modify the degree of symmetry of uh, a drop of water, is a specific tuning could help? So my question is, is a specific tuning could help to lower entropy and help to get rid of certain fear or to be used to attain a certain state of consciousness during a music concert? Okay. Um, kind of yes and no across all of that. That was a pretty broad, uh, broad sweep across things. Uh, the yes part would be things like binaural beats. Now, binaural beats is a is a frequency where you have a, a pure tone going in each ear, a separate, independent pure tone going in each ear. But the tones, the difference between the two tones, you know, each tone being a set, being a single frequency. That's what tone means, a single frequency. Then the difference between the tones cre creates a beat frequency. And if you do that in your ears, then the biology is such that the way the the uh, central nervous system works is that those tones mix at the corpus callosum, which is the membrane between the two hemispheres. Okay, so you have a, a an aural nerve that takes that sound, turns it into electrical impulses, neural patterns, and those things meet at the corpus callosum, and you can actually hear hear beats that are, have never been sound waves you hear things that have actually never been a sound wave if you will you hear them from inside of you not because there was any any acoustic wave hit an eardrum but because these beats are going on inside your brain all right now that has a has a capability of entraining brain waves 
So if you put an EEG on such a person listening to binaural beats and you make that binaural beat be 4 hertz and then you make it be 10 hertz and then you make it be 20 hertz, you'll see that more of their EEG energy, which is scattered all across the frequency spectrum, more of that energy will tend to move to that binaural beat frequency. That's what they mean by the binaural beat entrains the EEG or entrains brainwaves. It just shifts more of the energy that is spread over lots of frequencies into that particular frequency that's the same as the beat frequency. Okay, that's been done and studied and you know, that's in effect. And what it does is that if you listen to these binaural beats, you will, um, if it, and the binaural beats are down around the theta state, around four hertz, it will put you into a meditation state or at least a state of consciousness that is very similar to what people get into when they meditate. So that's kind of a common tool for people learning to meditate. So that's a case where sound affects, um, you know, quality or not quality. Sound just affects your awareness of your state of consciousness. Because some states of consciousness, you're very aware of the outside world, you know, and some you're, you're not so much. You're more inward, aware of the inside world. So we just call those states of consciousness. And yes, sound can affect states of consciousness. And we all know that sound can affect feeling. I mean, <laughs> anybody that's ever done a soundtrack for a movie knows that, you know, sounds, uh, will, you know, will create feeling. So when the bad guy is just about to grab the, you know, the heroine who's, you know, doesn't know the bad guy's hiding behind the bush, you know, well, the music, runs, you know, gets the whole audience up into a very tense state to go with the tense video that's going there. Or if something surprising happens, the music has to display that surprise or the happiness or the frivolity. And the music is a very important part of a video because the music helps create the emotional state that goes along with the visuals. And most of us have been so we've we've watched so many things in in, uh, in video that all we have to do is hear a, a certain kind of music and it immediately snaps us into a particular um, you know attitude. You know you get that dun 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 dun. You know you hear that music and right away what does that do? That puts you into a you know a different frame of mind than if you heard something that was very frivolous. Uh, or even Beethoven's dun 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 dun. You know, you hear that, and that does something to you emotionally that uh, is different than, you know, something something lighter. So, yes, music obviously can affect the way people feel and can affect their their state of mind. Well, music, I should just say acoustic vibrations, sound can do that. All right, so that being said, that's done... Basically with a simple, with a simple system, like the binaural beats, a very simple system. You're getting two tones to do beat frequencies at a corpus callosum. So you're having the, the beat frequency inside the central nervous system. All right. That happens to a trained brainwaves. And in, in the mood music, um, that has a lot to do with your culture. I suspect different cultures would, would not necessarily all respond to the same emotional cues that music gives us you know that you could take people in vastly different cultures and they may you know there may be some similarities there'd probably be a lot of similarities but i'm sure there'd be some differences as well so some of that is just learned you learn that certain sounds mean happy and certain sounds mean sad and certain sounds mean whatever but for the most part i think humans react emotionally to sound because sound can be very emotional. You, know, you have violins that sound like they're crying, and, you know, that's then very sad music. So we have those connections. But now what you're talking about, if we define middle C, you know, at a different frequency, if we take middle C and say, well, that's this frequency, no, let's shift that up to a different frequency. So if you define where the scales are, then our music, that follows those scales all shifts a little bit. You know, it'll be a little brighter or it'll be a little more subtle, a little lower. So we can, we can shift and get slightly different 
kind of mood content to music by shifting it around. And then we'll have arguments about, well, which one is the real middle C and where should it really be? Well, that's a matter of, you know, what, what should the, what should the director of that movie really play in the soundtrack? <laughs> well, it's a matter of choice. What is it that you're trying to do? And it's a matter of preference. What is your audience like and how does your audience respond to it? So there is no right or magic place. There's places that are different. You define the, the tonal scale one way. It's just a little different than if you find it a different way. So if you play the same piece of music that's written, you know, with the same notes in it, but those notes are all defined to be a little higher or be a little lower, then you'll just get a little different response from your audience of what you get. And some people like one better. Some people like the other. So I don't think there is any right answer to what's best. And by making that middle C in a particular place, it's not going to, you know, it's too complex to do something simple like in train brainwaves. It's not doing that. So once you get to a level of complexity, um, like music is very complex. It's not a pure tone and a pure tone. It's lots. It's thousands of tones and they're overtones and they're over overtones. You know, it's, it's, it's a whole lot of stuff going on. That complexity, complexity isn't going to do very specific things. It may create specific moods for many people. But that's a different question than what's the effect of frequency on consciousness. And you started out with a quote that said, you know, what's really important is vibration, frequency, and energy. Okay, well, I basically disagree with all of that. Energy is just virtual energy. There is no energy. No such thing as energy. It's a virtual reality. Well, in a virtual reality, you can have a virtual stick of dynamite explode and you can get a virtual explosion that will blow things up and scatter dirt and rock for a long distance and do all that sorts of stuff. That's a simulation. That's digital. There really is no energy. And vibration is a physical thing. We can only get a sense of vibration if we live in a three-dimensional reality. Vibration means back and forth. It's a change in space or a change in pressure or a change in something. It's a, it's a, you know, what's well, it's that. That's a vibration. You know, it has to do with change in a media someplace, whether that media is space or that media is, is pressure or that media is something else. We can make something vibrate because physical media somewhere oscillates back and forth. Okay, that's frequency. All right, now let's get into consciousness. Consciousness doesn't have any space. doesn't have any matter. It's spaceless. It's matterless. What's vibrating in consciousness? There is no vibration. Vibration is only a thing that you can model in a, in a physical world, in a, in a PMR. It's physical-based. Once you get into consciousness, vibration means nothing. Now, vibration can be used as a metaphor. Now, we can use, you know, because we use metaphors that are basically physical metaphors to mean things when we're talking about consciousness. So we can say, okay, you know, I've been doing this, these uh, spiritual exercises and I can feel my vibration is, is, is raised. Oh, I've been around all these awful people and I can feel my vibration has been drugged down to the, you know, to a lower place. <clears throat> or we can say, um, you know, I really like that person for some reason. I just get a good vibe from them. You know, that's vibe for vibration. So that's vibration used as a metaphor, not as actually something vibrating. So vibration, the metaphor can tell us we can use it when we're talking about things of consciousness, but we have to realize it's only a metaphor. The idea that you have, you know, and I've seen, I've seen schemes where they have, uh, like spiritual growth and you, you have, you know, 27 levels of vibration and they're all broken groups of, you know, seven or something. And you go up from this vibration to that. That's all metaphorical. None of that is actual. Okay. It doesn't actually, work like that 
But if you want to make those metaphors, make a system using those metaphors, well, have at it. That's that's all right. People can use whatever metaphors speak to them. So in the in consciousness itself, there is no vibration. Vibration requires space. You can't vibrate without space. Back and forth, even a pressure vibration and pressure requires different pressures at different times. Okay, pressures have to come and go. Pressure requires space. So space doesn't exist in consciousness. So I guess there is no <clears throat> music in NPMR. <laughs> no, no. Not there. No, it's not necessarily the case. In, not, in NPMR, you basically have just a lot of different virtual realities. It's not that this is the only virtual reality, and once you're out of this virtual reality, now you're in consciousness space. It's not like that. The virtual realities are everywhere. When you die here, you end up in a vir another virtual reality. When you're out of body, you're in a different virtual reality. Virtual reality just means you get a data stream that has some rules to it. You know, some, uh, you know, it's not entirely random. It's got information in it. It's an, it's an information stream. So it has to have information. Information requ requires some sort of structure, some sort of meaningfulness. So if you didn't have any information, then everything would just be kind of random. There wouldn't really be any experience. It's, it's the rules or the constraints that make the context that gives us experience. So when you're out of body, you're in a different reality. And when you're in that out of body state, <clears throat> you can hear music. You can go out of body and you can hear all sorts of music there. But that's, you're getting data from a data stream that you are interpreting in terms of music. Okay. Your consciousness, you get data, you interpret that data. So if you interpret the data as music and why do you interpret it as music? Because you, that's your best pattern match for it. You say, Oh, I'm getting this data. What does it mean? What is it? Oh, it's sort of like music. You know, it is music, but that's your own interpretation of it. And the only reason you can interpret that is because you have some experience with music. If you never heard any sounds, if you had always been deaf and had never heard a sound, you may not say that that was music. You may interpret it some other way. You may say, I feel that and it's like a little tickle going up and down my spine or some other kind of thing. You might interpret it a different way than music. So anyway, uh, no, it's not that there's no music in any other virtual reality, but this one, there's lots of virtual realities and music is also part of the, the, um, the interpretation of the beholder. And when the interpreter comes from here where music is a, it's a part of life, then it's gonna, the person's gonna interpret things as music there. Okay, thank you. Uh, could you conclude with talking a bit about your experience with different music? I don't know, and different composer in, in relation with your big picture view of reality or some experience you had out there? Yeah, I can, <clears throat> I can tell you one thing. One of the, one of the uh, realities that I was in, and it was another uh, kind of a PMR reality. Um, I, I that think means, I, I heard about that one. Is that some uh, people who were coming, coming yeah, they, through uh, vocalizing? Yeah, they, or, basically uh, they communicated with music, right. And the music was, it seemed to be, I don't know, you almost would say it was telepathic because it was, it was, you know, I'm not really sure what the physics of it was because I was just there an observer. And since I was one of them, this was a case where I took on the body and there, in their space. So I wasn't sure exactly how it was getting, but I could hear it. And, uh, um, and I could hear various sources of it, but the whole communication was done in what we would call music. At least that's what I called it from my, you know, from my interpretation of what it was, it was music. I'm not sure what their interpretation of what it was, but they didn't actually talk to each other in a way that we do. We have speaking and then we have singing. We have speaking and we have music. And they're very different. And I don't even, I don't just mean singing, but music, you know, just like instruments playing. Well, they had stuff that I just would call music, not singing, didn't sound like voice, 
It was just music. And all of their communications were done that way. That's how they communicated. And I didn't understand a lot of it because I didn't have the wherewithal to interpret that into something that, you know, that was in my experience. So I could just tell that it was there and that it was happening, but trying to make sense out of it and understand it and interpret it, I had very little luck in doing that. I got some of the general sense of it, kind of telepathically, but as far as the details of it, I had no idea. It was outside my experience base. So yeah, music is a, is a thing. It's because music, sound, is one of our primary intakes. You know, just like uh, eyes, vision is a primary intake. And just just like in sound, vision, there are some scenes, some pictures that make us feel, you know, warm and happy. And other scenes that make us feel, you know, upset and angry. And if you show, you know, thousands of different people, even from different cultures, these scenes, the same scenes that make us happy kind of make them happy, and the same scenes that make us upset would make them upset. Well, there's visual cues that we tie into what we do know that makes us, you know, de- interpret those things as being, you know, things that make us happy, things that make us sad, things that make us angry. Well, sound, other than sight, sound, sight and sound are the two biggies, right, as far as taking in the information that shows us our world, sight and sound. Yes, we got touch. Yes, we have taste. Yes, we have smell. But those are small side issues for us. Sound and vision are the two big ones for us. And in both sound and vision, there are set kinds of sounds and set kind of of pictures that make us feel in certain ways. So it's just we attach that meaning to them from, from experience. A lot of it's part of our culture. Some of it's just part of being human. And, uh, you know, so it's just the meaning that we subscribe to specific, to particular sounds based on our own experience and the experience of others. We pick this up out of collective consciousness in many ways, it's part of our culture. So those are our big, those are our big sensory organs. And in both of them, there's things that people can show us to manipulate us. You know, that's how people sell things visually. Like they, they make things visual to be attractive. Things we like make us feel good. We need to buy that. You know, look at those cherries. They're so bright and cheery red. Makes you want to go out and buy one. It probably would taste good because look how pretty it looks. You know, so we manipulate sound to get people to do things and feel certain ways. Part of being human here in this virtual reality. Any place that has vision and sound, whatever entities live there, it's going to be the same way. That vision and sound, if that's their primary uh, communication media, then they're going to learn to interpret some of it as nice and some of it as not nice. And, and it will they will be able to move their feelings just as sound and sight does us. Nothing particularly magic about that. You know, it's just that we're a very complex system. And we associate, we make associations because we're conscious. Thank you, Tom. I would like just to uh, terminate my question with uh, if uh, there's a kind of cultural response to some music, uh, can we have like an uh, direct intent or some kind of specific intent behind um, music that could maybe uh, have a stronger message messages or something like that do you know what i mean by that no i missed that okay, okay there is a cultural preferences in music obviously you know you have eastern you have you have of western course. you have different kinds of music that different cultures prefer yes i understand that but when someone is playing uh, maybe um, a specific uh, piece of music or uh is improvising on uh, on an instrument. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there some, because you say there is no magic behind sound or something like that, but could you have some more magic by uh, have a specific intent behind behind the playing of an, of an instrument, instrument or playing a piece of music or something like that? Do yes, you know I, mean? I do now. Yes, absolutely. 
because we communicate in many different ways. And I said sight and sound are two major ones for us. Well, there is another major one that we use that we don't talk about much, and that is telepathy, okay, mind to mind. And when a person is playing music, if that person has a very strong emotional content as he plays, then not only does the listener hear that emotional content expressed in the sound, but they also feel that emotional content from the player. So the person gets both of those. We're all netted. All consciousness is netted to all other consciousness. So if somebody is in a very um, strong or deep or, or clear emotive state, other people can pick that up from them. And if they associate then that, if that correlates with the sound they're getting, then that makes the whole thing better. You know, so the musicians and the painters and most of the other artists, that's what they mean when they say they put their soul into it. You know, it's not just them being competent with an instrument. It's the feeling they bring to it. It's the, it's what, you know, they bring from the inside. It's the way they feel about what they're doing has a lot to do with the way other people interact with that, with that sound because you get all three of those tracks. You get sight, sound, and you get mind to mind, feeling to feeling. So surely, uh, somebody who's playing an instrument who is, who is expressing deep feelings and whose mind is, is really involved in that music. That's going to sound different to somebody listening. They'll just think it's all sound, but it's not all sound. You know, some of it is sight because they look at that person and they see that musician and his eyes are shut and you can see expression on his face. So you get the visuals that show you his depth of connection with the music. And you also get the sound of expressing that connection. And then you get the mind to mind sound of experiencing that connection and all of that together makes a very dramatic impact. That's why going to a concert live is different than going to one that's been recorded. You can, you can listen to it, uh, you know, a, a perfect, very, very high tech, very, uh, you know, uh, precise rendition of it on a tape recorder. And it's not the same thing as being there watching the person do it. You know, being a part of it because you miss those other, those other aspects of it or you can miss those other aspects of it. It's not the same. So that's why people go to live concerts rather than just buy CDs. It's a different, it's a different experience when you're there. It is very different, isn't it? Tom, you also talked about one time how you brought some music to some of the alternate realities you've been to. What was their reaction to that? Yeah, this one reality that I'm talking about where it was all music, I thought I would play some music for them to see what they, how they interacted with it. You know, it's like if you meet somebody and you don't speak their language, yet they say something, you know, they do something or other. Maybe they wave their hands to try to, you know, tell you what's going on. Well, then you wave your hands back to see if you can't communicate. So I thought, well, let me play some music and see what kind of reaction I get. So I did. You know, I played music with my consciousness, some music that I was familiar with, and I just redid it, emotions and all, and sent it out there to see what would happen. And indeed, they did get it. They did connect to it. They did like it. It was a totally different thing than they had ever experienced before, but they appreciated it, and they and they liked it. They thought it was really neat. All right. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Guillaume. Um, what I'm going to do next is um, – oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I just uh, say thank you to Tom, and I wish I could, like, speak about arts for uh, one or two hours. With <laughs> <laughs> I know. I no, thank you, Guillaume. Uh, what I'm going to do next is um, we have uh, one question from Cheryl, and we miss, we're missing her today. We have some questions from participants who are not here today, and we have some MBT forum questions. And to be fair, I'm going to alternate between those. I'm going to start with um, 
Cheryl's question that was left out of one of the sessions because we had so many questions. Uh, Cheryl has been contemplating for a long time how to get through uh, her frustration with how she views reality and God. Um, this is what finally helped me move forward. She feels the LCS doesn't really care about avatars as such, what they go through, only about consciousness and its evolution. Um, if an IUOC comes in with high entropy and is in an abusive family, it may be very likely that IOC is also abusive itself and needs that experience to learn what feels like what it feels like so it can break free from that cycle of abuse. So if this is the case and I am part of this cycle, I want to be smart about this and not feel sorry for myself or be afraid I'm trapped in this cycle and can't ever get free from it. I feel I've made some good progress over the last four years. But since I am still so close to it, won't I just fall back into the cycle in my next life since I will forget everything done here? I know I will carry the quality of my consciousness when I leave here, but not any of the data. What, if anything, can I do or think to help my IUOC continue to grow past this? I don't know how I got into this cycle as I don't have the memory of prior lives. So I can't learn from that. What can I learn from? I just want to be smart about this and not be afraid. I want to stop the cycle uh, before I become the abuser again. I don't want to hurt others. And I don't want to spend eternity trapped in this endless loop of abused and abuser cycle. Well, Thank you. The, the way you break that cycle is just by growing up. When you let that go, um, when you go above that, outgrow it, however we want to say it, you know, evolve past it, lower your entropy, then you don't, you're not that anymore. You change who you are. It's not just about behavior. It's not just that you've learned how to change your behavior and now you're going to go back and do the same thing again. It's not focused on behavior. It's focused on who you are. It's focused on being. So when you change who you are at the being level, then you're changed. You're different. You will not repeat that. You're a different person. See, it's not just changing your behavior. You're different. Next time, you will be different. Now, evolution can be a slow process. It doesn't mean you will, you know, take great leaps forward every incarnation. But you will, by a series of, of changes of your being, outgrow that cycle of abuse. And it just won't happen to you anymore. You won't, you won't perpetrate it. You won't pass it on. You won't, uh, you know, you'll know how to deal with it if it happens to, you know, something that you have to deal with in a life. You won't be sucked into it. So it's, you just grow up, Cheryl. And when you've grown up, you've not just changed your behavior for this lifetime. You've changed who you are for all lifetimes after that. You're, you become a different person. So don't worry about passing it on. Just try your best to make the best choices you can. And after that, it is what it is. All right, Cheryl, I hope that helps out. Next question is from the MBT forum. And I've uh, condensed it down to a, uh, the final sentence here. Is there a continuity of consciousness regarding the consciousness of the free will awareness unit? Partis partitioned. Okay. Is there a no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. Okay. <clears throat> that is, the question is really about the continuity of the individual. And this is something that many people kind of get hung up with because they, you know, they are really the consciousness of you, uh, you being the avatar. You know, you're an avatar. So your name is Joe and Joe has a, an avatar. That avatar has a personality, has lived a life. Okay. And that, Avatar has a consciousness. That consciousness is a free will awareness unit. That free will awareness unit is a subset of an individuated IU, an individuated consciousness, an IUOC. Okay. Now that's the model. Most of you are probably familiar with, with that model. Now the problem that people have with it is when that avatar dies, that 
free will awareness unit just gets reabsorbed into the individuated unit of consciousness. The free will awareness unit called Joe doesn't exist anymore. There is no more Joe as far as a free will awareness. A free will awareness unit doesn't go on and then play Joe over and over and over again. It's not like in the world of Warcraft or Sims where you play the same character over and over again. When that character dies, you just re, you know, you regenerate them and go play them again. It's, it doesn't work like that. You play a character, when that character dies, that character's done. You replay a new character that starts off with all the, you know, with all what, all the, uh, all the skills and, and the hit points and, you know, whatever else the metaphor would be in, in the video games, you know, with all the quality that that character has, has earned, but you play a different character. So what happened to the old character? That old character just doesn't exist anymore. Joe doesn't go on. Joe, who looks just like Joe, talks like Joe, dresses like Joe, likes the same kind of food Joe always liked, doesn't go on doing those things that Joe always did. Joe was just a one-time uh, avatar to be used by that individuated unit of consciousness, logged on by the free will awareness unit, plays Joe. When Joe is over, Joe is done. So there is no continuity of Joe, except in the databases. In the databases, everything that Joe said, did, thought, felt is there, collected in the database. But that's it. Joe is no longer making free will choices. Joe doesn't go up and sit on a cloud, play a harp for eternity, making free will choices about what music to play on his harp. That isn't the way it works. Individuals are throwaways, if you like. It's something you use. The individual has the characteristics that the rule set says that you're going to get out of two sets of, uh, of chromosomes that, uh, that mix between sperm and egg. And the rule set uh, determines a lot of that. Chance determines some of that. And if the system wants, it can override and determine some of that if some special need is is necessary for Joe to learn what Joe needs to learn. But when Joe is done, there is no more. He's retired. He's in the database. And you can always go back and look at Joe in the database and talk with Joe in the database. You can go back to that database where Joe is, and you can say, hey, Joe, what do you think about uh, the election we're going to have next week? Who would you vote for? And Joe will give you the answer that is the most probable answer that Joe would have said based on everything that was defined as Joe. So Joe exists, can be talked to, even a hundred years later, if somebody still knows that Joe was existing, you know, great grandpa or somebody can look him up, talk to him, chat with him, and Joe can tell them things, things that nobody would know but Joe, because it's all there in the database. So that's the the story about the continuity of Joe, the continuity of the free will awareness unit. It's it only continues as information. If the larger consciousness system wants to play Joe to a character, which is Joe's great grandson, then it can do that. And it will animate Joe's database to have a conversation with Joe's you know, grandson or great grandson or great, 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 great grandson. And it will be true to Joe. So Joe is always available for consultation as a, as the system plays Joe to whoever it is that wants to consult with him. But Joe is no more, just as information is there. Okay, so that's um, a hard thing for some people to do. Joe wants to, Joe here as the avatar wants to be immortal. He wants to go on as Joe because that's how he identifies himself. He identifies himself with that avatar so much that he wants that avatar to continue being that avatar. So you have little Joes keep popping up every uh, every so often. But that doesn't work well because Joe is a product of his environment as well as a product of his genes. And now next next incarnation, Joe, you know, is a is a is a little girl in you know, who knows where? Tibet. He's a little Tibetan girl. Totally different culture, different sex. Totally different environment, totally different gene pool. 
that's going to, you know, uh, uh, define what the physical body could be like. Now Joe is going to have to go play that as Joe. You see, that doesn't work. Joe can't play that as Joe. It's the wrong, wrong environment. It's the wrong gene pool. Everything there is different. So it's, it just doesn't make any sense for Joe to keep playing Joe. Now, if Joe is only going to be this character, Joe, and he shows up never, never in Tibet, but Joe's always going to show up in around the same environment. But if he does show up in Tibet, he's going to be Joe. He's always going to be male. He's always going to have the same personality. He's always going to like the same kind of food. He's always going to be Joe. Well, if you always play the same character, you're going to limit yourself tremendously to the experience you can have. You know, it's like, you know, doing the same thing day after day after day. You're the same person. You're not going to grow up very efficiently that way. You need diversity. You need a diversity of experience and a diversity of challenges. So for Joe to continue on being Joe and, 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 uh, having avatars that maybe if they don't look exactly like Joe, they have his personality, that isn't helpful to your growth. So it's not only not rational as far as the, the, the system goes, it's, it's, it doesn't work. So Joe, I'm sorry. <laughs> it, uh, you know, Joe is going to end when Joe's avatar dies. And then Joe, the IUOC, who was the root consciousness for that free will awareness unit that played Joe, that goes on. Joe, in that sense, the sense of his IUOC, Joe is immortal. Joe is a part of something bigger than just Joe. And as a part of something bigger than just Joe, Joe lives on because his contribution to that evolution of that IUOC is always there. A contribution doesn't go away or melt or, or dissipate. So in that sense, Joe lives on as his contribution lives on, but he doesn't live on as a, an avatar continually named Joe or continually with that personality or with that same mindset or with those same beliefs and with those same fears. That just wouldn't be productive. So the avatar you have, you should not identify too strongly with the avatar. Identify with your IUOC. You don't even identify that strongly with your free will awareness unit. You identify with your individuated units of consciousness. That's who you are. You're a piece of that consciousness. That's who you are. And as such, you're immortal. You pick up different identities. As Avatar Joe, you're a throwaway. When Joe's done, Joe's done. Other than data in the database. All right. Thank you, Tom. The next question comes from Josh Myers in the December 2019 Fireside Chat. You talked about how you experience sleeping and dreaming at night. You stated that sometimes you don't have any dreams and then wake up the next morning. The dreamless sleep experience can be explained in the materialist model as most of the brain activity shutting down, which is why there are no experiences. The materialist model will also say that this is similar to what happens at death, nothingness because of no brain activity. How does your model explain dreamless sleep? Is there activity that we just don't remember? I'm trying to further understand how being unaware is explained in your model, since I believe you mentioned previously that the IUOC is always aware and conscious but the free will awareness unit isn't. Well, you know, it doesn't always have to be one way or another. There are times when you can dream and have nothing in your mind. There's times when you don't have to dream. You can be, you can be, uh, you know, sitting in a chair, you know, uh, looking at the view out your window and have nothing in your mind. And sometimes you can even be driving a car home from work and have nothing in your mind. And you get home and you wonder how you got there because you don't even remember the trip. You remember getting in the car and now you here you are in your driveway, but you have no idea actually of anything that happened in between. So there's lots of times that you can have where there's no processing going on that you're aware of. Okay, that's what being blank means. You're not aware of any processing. 
which doesn't mean that there isn't any process going on. Now, it doesn't mean that there is necessarily processing going on. You have different things can happen. It's all not just one thing. So there are times when there's just no processing of your free will awareness unit. It's just not processing any information. And it's not going to do that for a long period of time. If it does that from a long period of time, then somebody, you know, takes you in and, and uh, you know, puts you in a hospital because you're in a coma. And when you're in a coma, you, you're just no longer processing information. And with the physical world, it doesn't mean you aren't processing information back into consciousness in the non-physical world. You may still be processing there just fine. Okay, so if it appears here in the physical world that you're not processing, which means you're blank, which means there's no, doesn't seem to be any information flow, sometimes that's just a good thing. Sometimes it's a break. Sometimes it's just being relaxing, doing nothing, you know, floating in the void, no thoughts, no processing, and no experiencing even if you wish to not, you know, if that, that floating has, has no, Nothing you see, nothing you hear, nothing you feel, feel, taste, or smell, then there's really no input there. Okay, and that's really not processing. As soon as you think, oh, I'm floating in the void. Well, now you're processing. But when you just are without thinking about it, you're not processing. That can happen at night sometimes. You don't always have to do a lot of dreaming, although uh, studies of people sleeping, almost everybody goes through 90 cycles of, of uh, you know, sleep cycles for 90 minutes and you go through REM and you go through Delta and you know, you, you dream in, in these cycles every 90 minutes, you have a period of dreaming, they would say, but that's just average. It doesn't mean that everybody does that every night. We're all different. And from day to day, month to month, we may dream more, we may dream longer, or we may not remember any of our dreams. We may process some things and not bring them back. Okay, we're a, we're a multi-dimensional being. We can be processing on a level other than what we remember here. That can happen too, or it could be we're not processing, just not processing anything. We're just resting, letting those letting those cycles just go to waste, if you will. Okay, so I wouldn't say that we have to be processing all the time, either either here or there. And when we're not aware here, we're processing someplace else. Not necessarily. I would say most of the time we're processing because most of the time we want to be productive. But it doesn't mean that you can't take a break and not process for a little bit. So it's kind of all of the above, Josh. Uh, it's, we do different things different times. Sometimes I have no awareness of dreams at all. Sometimes I will go to sleep and, you know, nine hours of a particularly long sleep, maybe nine or even 10 hours later, I'll wake up in exactly the same position I was in when I went to sleep. Now, I don't know that I didn't move around and then just come back to that position. But sometimes it seems to me that I never twitched, never moved, never rolled, never did anything. Just laid there in that spot and without moving, without thinking, the whole night was spent that way. I'd have to have a, a camera set up to actually watch me and see what I did. But uh, I think you can be inactive. You can be active. You can dream. You can not dream. Periods of your life where you're, you're dealing more with things, you'll probably have more dreams. When you're not dealing with a lot of stuff, you probably have less dreams, less things to do. If the system's working with you and giving you fear tests and putting you in situations to see how you act, you're going to have lots of dreams. If they're not, because you've maybe passed all those tests or maybe you're not ready for any of the tests yet, then uh, you won't have very many dreams or they won't be the same kind of dreams. So it just depends on where you are, the phase you are, and uh, what's going on in your life about how you dream and how you sleep, how much, you know, how long your REM sessions are. Do you really have 90-minute cycles, or are you somebody that only, you know, that has, you know, 100-minute cycles or 200-minute cycles, or you only have two or three cycles in a night? 
I think it changes. Everybody doesn't do the same thing all the time every night. Human beings are not that consistent. So the MBT idea of of not thinking, I guess it's just that. Sometimes we don't process. Sometimes we process and don't know it. Uh, kind of <laughs> the way it is. Consciousness is generally busy because otherwise it's wasting time. But it doesn't have to always be busy. Rest is good too. All right, thank you, Tom. Uh, the next question comes from the MBT forum, Pipe Man eighty four. In this PMR, humans are the avatars used by the most evolved consciousness, consciousness to incarnate into. So, from a scale of one to ten of consciousness evolution, one is insects, say ten is humans and all our other animals somewhere in between. The question I have, where does the consciousness level 20, for instance, incarnate? Are there other PMRs that support higher levels of consciousness than this PMR? Because it seems to me that if they wanted to incarnate here, say as humans, it would be a downgrade, equivalent to a human incarnating as an insect. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, I, you know, you're... you're... You're saying that the human experience is limited. You know, because we say that an insect's experience is limited, more limited, say, than a, than a bird's uh, experience. And a bird's experience is more limited than maybe a, you know, a monkey's experience and so on. So you're saying there are limitations to the amount of choices, to the size of the decision space that can be, uh, you know, that, that can be had. And, I don't know whether uh, humans are at the top of that pile or not here in in, uh, in this PMR. I'm not sure I would agree with you. Uh, they are definitely at the top of the pile as far as having meaningful, um, having, a, what did I say, a, a large and meaningful decision space because human beings can affect and do so much. They can manipulate their environment and each other so much. There's so many choices they have. And though there are other critters on this planet that have much bigger brains than we do, and maybe that doesn't mean that they have more things going on, but they also have much larger uh, cerebral cortex than we do, which is all where all the higher thinking is, then maybe they do a lot more of that higher thinking. But they don't live in an environment where they have a an as rich and varied decision space as we do. So at least that's the way it would seem. They don't have that same choice space because we have so many things, so many ways that we can create and interact, modify our environment, um, modify each other, modify ourselves, whereas other entities that may have more time in meditation and more time uh, you know, thinking big thoughts but a whole lot less time getting into mischief and causing trouble and, you know, uh, raising hell here on this, this planet like humans do, creating this huge mix of, of interactions and consequences that we do. So we're good at that. So the human is a, is a real good place to go to learn because it's got so many choices. So the learning is rich here, but it doesn't mean we think the biggest thoughts. It just means that we have the, best capacity for growing up. There may be other creatures here who think bigger thoughts more often than we do. But in any case, you're saying that you can imagine or you think there must be another form someplace of, of avatar that allows even richer and more decision space than we have. Well, maybe that's so, but if that's the case, I haven't experienced it. So I would say that, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, there's lots of possibilities and I haven't experienced everything, I'm sure, by a long shot, but I'm not so sure that's true. We're about as in inactive, or I mean interactive, we're about as interactive as a, as a animal can be. We're very, uh, you know, we affect each other very dramatically. So there's a lot of feedback and a lot of consequences that we generate here. 
Maybe there's some other kind of avatar that would generate more consequences, but I don't know. Maybe not. This may be, uh, you know, I mean, what else could we do? You know, with our opposable thumbs and the technology we've created, we can manipulate and change and create uh, choices that are uh, almost unending. And that just keeps growing, the choices we have. So, you know, good choices and bad choices. You know, I, I think I said in my book someplace that, uh, you know, the human beings have the choice to uh, destroy the world in one of, you know, like five different ways. Yet I don't think a pod of dolphins, you know, has much of a choice to destroy the world. See, they don't have that same level of interactivity that we do, even if they think much bigger thoughts much more often than we do. They may have superior uh, consciousness than we do, maybe. But if they did, they probably got it being human first because this is where all the action is as far as growth goes and being challenged. But probably not. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not sure that I would agree that just because you see this hierarchy of, you know, insect, uh, you know, I don't know what, you know, small mammals, you know, bigger, bigger things, bigger things going up to where you get complex humans. And you think, well, if, you know, why not just keep right on going up? Well, perhaps if you had beings, let's say, that didn't live in a 3D space, but li- lived in maybe, um, I don't know, 5D space, a 6D space. Now I'm talking about dimensions, geometric dimensions. They would have more, more ways of interacting than we do, right? If they were in a four or five dimensional space, because there'd be that many more ways that they could configure things and do things and that much more complexity in doing them. But would it actually, all that extra complication actually make it easier for them to grow up? Or is there some sweet point somewhere here in the middle where you can get about your maximum amount of growth without spending so much of your time dealing with the complexity of the environment? So who knows? Humans may be it. We may be that peak. Although you can think of more complicated PMRs, just because they're complicated doesn't mean that the decision space that the beings there would have would be that much different. But it's hard to us to even think of such spaces, so I don't know. You know, it's like we're we're trapped here in our own uh, set of experiences, and it's hard to think outside of our own uh, experience. So there may be some other sets that are that are uh, better growth inducers. But um, if I was put in one of them, I wouldn't understand what was going on. So I probably wouldn't even interpret it as a very intelligent space. Because it would be so far outside of my own experience, I wouldn't know how to interpret it. So we can say that possibly there are things that are more, uh, uh, that are, that are faster track evolution than human, but it's also possible that there aren't, that the humans represent the sweet spot for, uh, for consciousness growth. But if there are things that are, that are, have a sweeter sweet spot than us, then I'm sure the system would be using them. And would probably using them mostly. And we would just be a sideshow, a historical sideshow the way it was in the old days, perhaps. And most of its energy would be put in these other more productive spaces. I don't see that happening. And maybe it's because I just outside of my vision to see that. Or maybe it's just not like that. Maybe this 3D reality is about as complex as it needs to be for us to optimize our decision space, our effective growth-inducing uh, decision space. Mostly the decision space we have here in this PMR is more than we can handle. There's more decisions than we're really uh, able to make well. We make a whole lot of them not so well because it, uh, we have so many. So I don't know that I would agree with you that uh, that uh, we're not the... We're not the sweet spot. We may not be, but maybe we are. Also, Tom, I think his question suggests that higher level consciousnesses would not want to be here, but I think you've mentioned that that's not true. Higher level consciousnesses come here to help others. Right. 
I think. Yeah, if you're a high-level consciousness, it's all about love. How can I help? And where you go to help is where people need help. So if here's a place where people are struggling to grow up, well, here's a place where you need to go to help. If you're in a place that is so much more grown than this that everybody's grown up and they're now only growing up by little tiny bits because they're all so evolved, well, all those people would want to do is come here <laughs> and be helpful because that's what you do when you grow up. You want to be useful and helpful. You want to give back, not go escape with the other you know, wise people and get away from this place. You want to come back here and be useful. Otherwise, you're not grown up. That's what grown up means. It means you care. <laughs>